Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. breath of God. Grace has many expressions. And without a doubt, it has engaged in your life so many times, you have no idea. If you 
understood how often and how much your lives have been protected, guided, intervened by heaven, your jaw will drop on the floor. That is the nature of grace. And it's an itsy bitsy voice, but everybody has that. It's like a, a wave of guilt that goes through you. That says, are you really sure you want to say that or think that about that person? That's, that's grace in action. That's grace that comes in and says, That's how grace operates in your life. It saves you from doing something harsh and dark and gives you an option to do something good and light in its place. Grace is the breath of God. America Meditating Radio. That was Carolyn Mace on Grace. I'm your host, Sister Jenna. I hope you're doing well. You're safe. You're not breaking down, but you're rising up. And you are looking at this time as your inner work, since we're so much on the internet, (laughs) or we're so much on the internet. Are you like me? Are you sending your blessings and your good wishes to the inventor of the Internet, the internet, I say I keep calling it internet now, but are you really sending your blessings to the persons or the people who invented Wi-Fi, internet, a laptop, a smartphone, Zoom, YouTube, Skype, a telephone? I find myself doing that a lot. Wherever their souls might be, I just thank them, because if we had not these tools... What would you be doing today? What would you be doing today? How would you be showing up during this coronavirus pandemic? What would you be doing? Would you be settled enough inside of yourself that you are in a state of hopefulness? Would you be contented with the person that you have become? Would you be joyous and happy that this is happening? It's just what it is. Would you be in a space of acceptance and living off of the fruits of your good deeds from the past? Or would you be panicking? What do I do? Where do I go? How long do I stay with these same people? Why can't I see other people? Oh, let me just go outside. Who cares if I die? This is death anyway. I've heard it all. But one of the things I do want to say is that our thoughts will heal us And our thoughts can take us to the next stage of our lives. And I believe that we are coming to an end of an iron-aged way of being. And we're being ushered forward towards a golden-aged way of being. Where there isn't the virus of anger, lust, 
greed, attachment, or ego. That's why we're in this position. Why is it that everyone on the planet is suffering right now by being isolated and having to look at themselves in ways that they haven't before? Algae, it's a virus internally. If there's any trace of anger in your personality, it's a virus. If there's any trace of greed, jealousy, frustration, attachment, criticism, do you judge people? It's a virus. Are you attached? Are you lustful? It's a virus. And and when you're not able to articulate or use them, they will disturb your mind, which is why meditation is so important in helping us secure our state of mind. Because if we don't find a way to think in a different way, we're never going to be satisfied despite all the freedoms we've had. Here in Washington, D.C., the cherry blossoms are out. No one can go and see them. No one can go and hang out. People can't sit under the cherry tree as a family. So why are we looking so much inside of ourselves? We need a cure. We need an emotional cure, a spiritual cure, a mental cure. And it starts with taking the medicine of change your thoughts. Change your pattern of seeing even what this means to you. And find a way to approach this as a means to learn where you have been going might not have been the best place to go and to determine where you need to go now, knowing that the whole world has been given a second chance. I think about how the oceans are getting a break. I think about how the parks are getting a break. I'm thinking about how the atmosphere, the environment, the trees are getting a break. The animals are getting a break. A break from what? A whole bunch of us walking around making a lot of noise, cutting down trees, polluting our waters, destroying our atmosphere. It's a powerful time, and I think we need to be hopeful. Our guest today is someone I've been looking forward to interviewing, Dr. Christopher Kerr. He's an MD, PhD, author of Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End. He's also the CEO and Chief Medical Officer at Hospice Buffalo. He earned his MD as well as PhD in neurobiology and completed his residency in internal medicine at the University of Rochester. Dr. Kerr's background in research has richly evolved from bench science toward the human experience of illness as witnessed from the bedside, specifically patients' dreams and visions at the end of life. He has published multiple stories and studies on this topic and documented over 1,400 end-of-life events, many of which were actually videotaped. His research is subject of his TEDx Buffalo talk, which has been viewed over 2.5 million times. His work has received international attention and has been featured in the New York Times, Atlantic Monthly, BBC, to name just a few. Today, we're so happy to welcome Dr. Christopher Kerr to the air. Welcome, Doctor. Glad to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. I hope you're staying safe. I sure am. And you? Me too. Me too. We've had to lock down our museums, so I'm glad that our visitors can't say that they got anything from there, and I just hope everyone's taking heed 
some of the advice and directions. How are you feeling about this particular time, Dr. Kerr? What are your thoughts that are going through your mind as a physician, but also as a human being and someone who has seen death much more than I have? Um, I, I, I worry for how this type of death is unfolding, and that you know we, we we as a collective are are are, are in fear. Um, and the, the rate it's happening doesn't allow for normal processing at end of life to reach an acceptance and understanding. And then the, the best way to go through these things is connected to one another. And because it's an infectious illness, we're having to disconnect from one another. So mm-hmm. it's um, everything is everything that is potentially therapeutic in this process has essentially um, been removed. Uh, as a physician, I'm, I'm terribly worried for those who are frail and vulnerable. Um, I worry about our staff, and we're seeing some remarkable behavior. Uh, it's kind of a stress test for the psyche, and we're seeing people who um, are very fearful and having a hard time functioning. You mean as the physicians and the nurses and practitioners? Yes, yeah, and and for good reason, just because the, we were so wholly unprepared. There's the virus, and then there's the problem of testing and the absence of it and the lack of a proper equipment. Of course, and, you know, I kind of wonder how sometimes the universe has a way of self-correcting itself, that when you had millions of people always out and there were more broken bones, there were more this and that, now you have lots of people staying in, but there's one virus that continues to live. And so I think about the mothers that are giving birth at this time. That's got to be a difficult yeah. period. Uh, my, my brother had a baby two days ago. Oh, everything you know. is okay, I'm sure. Everything's okay, but yeah, you're right. Entering a hospital is, is a scary proposition. Yes, yeah. yes, I understand that. The fear factor is just about going through our roofs. And even if you've lived a fearless life, there's still the lurking of the concerns which are still feeding an element of fear. Any ideas to how best we can handle the fear that we all might be going through? And it's a collective fear, too. It isn't just a country's fear or a family's fear. This is the whole world is feeling like something is coming to an end. Yes, very much so. Right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how it's forcing us to be less distracted in a way outside of activities and becoming more homebound and family-centered. and So there's some interesting side effects. Yes. Any thoughts about how you would handle the fear? Like, personally, when you've had a moment of fear where you've recognized that you could get over it, what did you do? Were you able to do something to help reduce your fear factor? Yeah. I, 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 I think one of the things that's lost here is that um, a lot of fears made worse by a lack of uh, accurate and consistent information. I think becoming informed is a great step towards becoming, taking things from an emotive level to a more cognitive level so we can think rationally and behave properly. So capturing fear and, and turning that energy into, to, into good thought is really important. Okay, got that. So let's go to some of the work that you're doing as well. As a medical doctor, now the CEO and Chief Medical Officer for Hospice Buffalo, tell us a little bit about your career journey. Well, how in the world did you end up in hospice care? You know, that can be such I a wish. daunting experience. 
Yeah, I wish I could tell you it was an aspiration, but it was really simple. In, in 1999, I was a cardiology fellow, and I needed to make some extra income and found a, an ad for a part-time doctor at um, at hospice on the weekends. And I really didn't know what the job involved, um, but started it, and I wasn't here very long and realized this was probably the most meaningful work I uh, had ever done and left what I was doing, and I've never looked back 21 years later. Wow. Fantastic. Any um, and no regrets, huh? No, none at all. Mm-mm. Good, good. No. You've got a new book out, Death is But a Dream, and I think a lot of people are questioning their mortality now. You drew upon interviewing over 1,400 patients, which was conducted over a decade-long study. Could you give me some insights as to the interviews, and was there a, p- a specific patient experience that actually prompted you to get into such a research? Sure. Uh, Essentially what happened was when I um, came from kind of acute technologically-based medicine to hospice, I wasn't here very long, and I realized my colleagues in the allied fields had a much deeper appreciation for what the patient was actually experiencing. So instead of looking at the patient as a medical complexity, an organ function, or failure, just going more to the subjective or what was actually the patient was, was feeling and interpreting. And when looked at the patient that way, dying became less of a, of a medical problem to solve and much more of a, of a human experience, much more of a closing of a life than, than organ failure or lessening or physical demise. And when you looked at it that way, there were just some remarkable experiences that seemed to be near universal that people were, were having, which often include these kind of pre-death uh, experiences in the form usually of, of dreams. And what happened was, I, I, I can't say I, I gravitated to it, but I wasn't doing it very long when I realized how inherently therapeutic it was for people. And as I describe in the book, one of the uh, critical patients that, that really made me um, kind of get away from my own discomfiture and realize it was about patient was a patient named Mary who um, was surrounded by her four living children, but then was seen holding a baby that no one else could see and referring to him as Danny and, and Queen and kissing him. And nobody knew the reference until the next day when her sister came in and um, and said that Dan- Danny was actually the first child who was still born and had been lost. And it was clear she was so at peace. She was having these kind of spiritual wounds were, that were being addressed, and she, she was comforted, and so were her loved ones. Wow. Isn't that powerful? I can't believe how the soul can hold narratives for such a long time that at a moment of absolute truth, it comes up to reveal that perhaps that was our block or that was Boy, oh, that is so well said. That's that's actually one of the more predominant themes that comes out of this work is that mm-hmm. time becomes irrelevant. And it's not uncommon to have a 95-year-old man who lost his mom when he was five it's her voice he hears and her perfume he smells. Or a veteran who fought a war 67 years ago. Um, Go back to those scenes. Yeah, time becomes absolutely irrelevant when it comes to what really matters. It's incredible. Now, in the face of death, what are some of the things that the patients focus on or speak of? As much as time becomes irrelevant and things that are sitting in there comes up, is there something specific that you have heard over and over again in many of the patients that you did this? Right. So what, 
Yep. What we did was we would, in our first study, we gave a questionnaire daily to people. And it's really important to, to, to clarify that we're not talking about the minutes before death. We're talking about the days, weeks, and sometimes months. And these people are lucid. We make sure that they're, we have tests to, to make sure they're not confused. This is a university study. They have to consent, be witnessed, all those sorts of things. So these are people who are cognitively intact. And when we looked at that and we asked them every day, we saw as they approached death, there was dramatic frequency in these pre-death dreams and visions. And overwhelmingly, we asked them to pick from a menu list. As they got closer to death, what they're, they're focused on um, was seeing, being reunited with people who they loved and lost. And not just any people, but the ones who truly loved them well, secured them, nurtured them. Their love was unconditional. And those who weren't that way with them were kind of removed. These events increase in frequency, and when we looked at what they were dreaming of and then how much comfort they gave them, those were the dreams that gave them the most comfort. Wow, interesting. Wow, that's that's interesting. Um, you've said that dying is a paradox. Physically, you are declining, but spiritually and emotionally, you're not. Right. When We did a study where we looked at dying as kind of this post-traumatic experience. You know, could could there be positive gains made within an event that was otherwise negative or traumatic. And when we looked at it, people who were having these experiences were remarkable in that they were showing gains in understanding uh, and insight into meaning finding really right up until the last days of life. So when you look at it, when we see somebody who's dying, what we see is what's objective and physical, which is lessening. And what we're feeling, obviously, is loss and grief. But what the patient might be experiencing also includes things that are actually very life-affirming. And in doing that, they actually lessen the fear of death. But the idea that we're still, uh, there seems to be this very human experience where that um, they don't stop living because they're dying. Wow. You know, they, they, they continue right to the end. You know, I don't know if you felt this also, Doctor, but I feel that when I'm going through maybe a moment or a period of fear, I don't feel alive. I really don't. I, I'm moving, but I don't feel alive. And I found that when right. I'm in a happy place or in at least a place of realization of life or truth for myself, it's like I'm breathing. Mm-hmm. It allows you to reconnect. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Now, in the book, you have spoken about pre-death dreams. Um, what are they, and how do the pre-death dreams and visions actually help to humanize the dying process? Is it a little bit about what you said already? Yeah, I, I, I think it. Um, what it does is it, it, it reacquaints us to what make the best parts of having lived, which are predominantly our relationships. And that's what we seem to return to. The other thing that seems to happen is whatever kind of injury or harm or need that we carry from having lived seems to be addressed in some way. So uh, I'll give you an example. A mother whose uh, child might be in prison is questioning her her worth as a mother and her end-of-life dreams for deceased parents come and validate her and tell her that she was uh, she was a good mom. Um you know, we had a, a fellow who lost his arm as a child, and he that that psychic injury of how he was going to be functional and valued and mean have meaning he carried with him obviously through his life and in his end of life dreams, his coworkers come back to him and tell him um, how good he was at his job and that he was better than other people. Um, 
so whatever uh, seems to be needed uh, almost seems to be get, we get made more whole. And in that way, it, 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 it's, it's very human. So it, it really, dying isn't, um, again, about failing parts. Um, it's about reacquainting ourselves with who we are. Mm, that's beautiful. I like that. That's very hopeful. So the bereaved can actually also be comforted by hearing some of these pre-death dreams, or does the bereaved, um, have you done any case with those that have that are mourning a loss that their dreams sort of match some of the thoughts of the dreams of persons who've passed? Does that question make sense? Yeah, um, we haven't. Other people have, um, and I, I don't know a great deal about it, but there's a, something called shared crossings or something where they look at that. We were very focused on not what happens after either. We were really focusing on just the experience of dying, but but there are people who have looked at that. What we did with the breed was interesting. We have over 750 surveys, and we've published two studies uh, on this topic. And, and, and very simply, what's good for the patient is good for their loved ones. And it makes sense that how you see somebody die very much affects your grief processing. And we've been actually able to show when you use scales of grief evolution that people do better who see these experiences and and, and you know, there's just ca- countless examples but if you've had a couple that's been together for six decades and they had a loss of a child and then and, and you know the one is looking down on his life partner and, and he or she is 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 seeing or experiencing the lost child that that that's less about loss and emptiness and more about meaning and connectivity and it binds everybody to something across lives. And that when they reflect on the loss afterwards, that that, that just changes, obviously, how they contextualize it. Um, and we see this even with people who have um, who are cognitively different with demented. And we had a, a woman who, um, we live in the Buffalo area, so it's common to get married in Niagara Falls, and she's, she's trying to leave the building. Uh, before death, and where she's going is to she's going to her wedding day. So here she is at the end of her life, but she's reliving um, the most meaningful day of her life. Dr. Kerr, have you ever kind of had those quiet moments, and you've looked at life and death as the same? Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to put it. I, I think I think there are there is commonality, and, and, and again, like I said, I don't think we stop living because we're dying. Have you ever witnessed the energy? Like, have you ever witnessed the energy? Um, I'm, I'm sure I can talk to you about this. That you know, there's a soul in that body. You know, there's a spirit that's running that body. That's why, when the organs are failing, the the spirit is becoming more illuminating. Have you ever witnessed, whether through a very subtle experience or maybe a gross experience? as if you could actually see like the soul is departing from the body? I honestly can't say that I have, which which mm-hmm. may just reflect my own limitations. Um, <laughs> no, not at all. It's something that you certainly hear people talk about. It's really interesting when you look at the TED Talk. What's fascinating the TED Talk is the responses because people are finally, there's a context in which they can relate their own stories, and oftentimes that's what they describe. Um, Indeed. You know, there's just this sense, this understanding that something was transpiring. When the soul leaves the body and you're in the room, do you sense the presence of the soul next to you? Or do 
energy has left and now all you see is just a corpse, like a body with no life, almost like just just lead? Yeah, yes. Uh, I think it's more the latter. Um, okay. But I just, I, just, I just prefer not to see that. What, what I experience more is the continuation of that person in the love that's shared by, within the family and their loved ones. Beautiful. Um, so in a way, the, the, where you see emptiness, actually there's full of richness. Um, and that imprint of having mattered is there. It's just in a different form. Mm, that's lovely. That's very comforting, Dr. Kerr. How has working with hospice impacted you? Has it, has it been a gradual change for you, or would you say pretty much you're seeing things in a very similar vision that you did 20 years ago? Oh, no, not at all. I, I think what people miss when they think about the work that we do is they assume that it's uh, overwhelmingly depressing and we must be depressed. And, in fact, what people don't understand is we're also remarkably privileged um, to see the very best in people. Uh, in the, you know, the world stops just like it is now with this virus. And daughters are no longer lawyers. They're daughters again. And um, they have to, uh, they start to find in themselves um, the strength to face adversity and to, and, to, and to gesture and to love. And those sort of things are what seems to matter most towards the end. Mm, beautiful. Do you think medical professions need to look at the end of life differently than they are now? You might have heard at Elmhurst, Elmhurst Hospital so many COVID patients are dying that they've actually hired a truck that's a refrigerator to be able to place those bodies inside because they might not really know what's the best or most sacred way to take care of that. Maybe all they're looking at, the heart has stopped the organs have failed. Okay, let's move mm-hmm. on. Do you have any thoughts about a way in which the medical profession could actually improve um, on or do differently, you know, in terms of this particular area in their practice? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, we we, <clears throat> we have to become less death-defying, more, more honest when... Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what that involves is um, returning to the historic role the physician is a comforter so you know the the worst words we say to a patient now is there's nothing more we can do for you that's true in terms of intervention but that's essentially abandonment and um, because somebody might not survive doesn't mean we break our contract and our commitment to be there in a presence Um, so reclaiming that magnificent role the doctor as being somebody who can be relied on to be there in need, regardless of outcome, would go a long way to reclaiming dying in something which we had a say. This idea that all of a sudden you're no longer treated, therefore we're not, we're not here for you, is actually, in, is actually injury. And it's not just injury to the patient, it's injury to the doctor. It's dehumanizing, it's, it's defeating. You have to let go of somebody because they have less value because they're dying. Reclaiming that is a really important step. It's also good karma, Dr. Kerr, because I'm, I'm going to leave my body too. So I would want to be honored on my, in my final moments as well. Yeah, so absolutely. What, you know, what's your main message as you leave us today? I've enjoyed you. I've really enjoyed you. I love 
there's just a genuine, like, I've been there, I've been doing this, I'm in it, I'm understanding this, pro- at least I'm in the process of deeply even understanding more. But your reverence for the transitioning of life, I think, is such an important story. And we thank you thank so much you. for that. I really mean that. I really, really mean that. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, any last-minute sharings that you'd like to leave with our listeners today? Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, um, illness and its diagnosis of terminality is, is, is overwhelmingly tragic. But that most people actually reach a different level of acceptance, and their fear there goes from less inward to really concern for others, and that dying changes your perspective and your perceptions. It's a different vantage point, and there's this natural tendency to reflect on the life that you led. And um, there's a better story in that the good things of having lived and mattered come to surface and, and make death less fearful for most people. Beautiful. Love it. Look, leave us with a website that we can find out more information about you and get Sure. Yeah, and I'd encourage people to go there um, because they can see the patient videos, which is just, they're remarkable. Um, So it's drdrchristopherkerr.com. Beautiful. Dr. Christopher Kerr, thank you for joining us. Please stay safe and all the very best. You too as well. Thank you. Me too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wonderful information, wasn't that, everyone? So let us look at, I mean, I just lost our daddy at 104 on Thursday, and I've not felt any sorrow. I feel like she's still living. And I think that we need to look at death from a different perspective, as Dr. Kerr said. I mean, look at this as really more, I don't know, the appreciation of what it has meant to be here on the planet. And I think this is this is a big message that he's offering us, folks. We're living too much with fear that we're missing the opportunity to truly live. And if you're like me, you took what he said. When we're leaving, that's when the soul is actually illuminating. I mean, you can see it radiating and getting more to its you know, deeper sense of itself. Come on, we have an opportunity now through meditation and spirituality to live like this. It shouldn't be that when my organs are failing is when I realize, oh my God, that was what life was about. So I'm inviting you, get on board, go into your internet and begin to transform some thoughts and heal some of those wounds. I've told you about one one particular one that has been sitting in my heart about being hurt by someone who I, you know, you know, had a, a respect for in a, in a level of authority. And I know that I don't need an apology from the person, but Jenna needs to just work that through because I don't want that to be my block to live. You know, so little by little, check what's in your heart, what's going on, what are you holding on to, what do you still feel ashamed of, what are you feeling a lack of worth from, don't. Yes, yes, stuff has happened. It's been traumatizing. It hurt the innocence and the purity of the soul. Do I have to just keep living there? Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to visit Dr. Christopher Kerr on his website at drchristopherkerr.com and get some more information on his book, Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission, and we really are here to love each other the same. Remember, as I mentioned, please keep practicing your trap and troll. Pause every hour on the hour, and let's bring some more peace into our bodies, into our environment, into these relationships, into our country, and into our world. There's bliss. 
I'm playing this song on behalf of Dr. Kerr because this is where I think most of his patients experience the light when they decide to say goodbye. Take care, everyone. Sister Jenna, you've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes, 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care.